listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. My guest today is New York City criminal defense attorney Marielle Colon Miro. She grew up in Puerto Rico. And her claim to fame these days is that she was on the legal team that represented El Chapo and Jeffrey Epstein. But there's much more to Marielle, and we're going to hear about that today. Welcome, Marielle. Hi, good morning. morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you. Thank you. So as an attorney, I have to say you've had a bit of an unusual career trajectory, um, which is pretty exciting. So you are 27, is that right? That's correct. And the way that I understand it, and you tell me if this is wrong, you took the bar exam. You were waiting for the results. So you needed a job. You replied to an ad where some law firm needed a Spanish-speaking paralegal. You applied for the job, and you got it. And then you find out that you have to go to jail to talk to El Chapo. That's correct. That's exactly how it happened. Okay. So I'm kind of curious if you had seen the ad saying, oh, yeah, we need you to translate legal documents for El Chapo. Would you have been like slightly intimidated by that? Absolutely not. I actually think I would have taken the job even faster. (laughs) Awesome. Right. I guess everybody would have wanted that job. Right. Of course. (laughs) And then I saw something kind of funny because I'm thinking of myself as a younger attorney, which was a little while ago. I I think I would have had a heart attack if this happened to me at the time, because we have to remember you you I, I'm assuming you haven't really represented anybody at that point or not too many people, and you're oh, a young attorney at, at, at that point at the point where when I started with Guzman yeah no well I mean besides you know uh, internships and and legal clinic uh, you know law school clinic no I mean as an attorney that was my first client ever that is so incredible because most people when they start at their law career you know they they're in some back room somewhere they're doing paperwork they're you know (laughs) doing discovery I think if you work for a smaller firm you get some opportunities early to go to court and do things like that but your first client is El Chapo that's correct that's correct I actually I I I was uh, I had been applying to you know before of course I got the opportunity and um and while I was waiting bar results I had applied for a legally this well um and uh, yeah I mean so it, it was definitely not in my plans <laughs> to be representing Guzman Yeah well well that's very exciting so I read somewhere that you went to the jail and I guess you had a, some a partner with you, and you were all both of you were supposed to go in and talk to him about your his legal matter. And the other attorney had lost his or her wallet, so she yes. didn't have ID to get in. So you had to go in by yourself. Yeah. So that was my supervisor, and that was the first time I ever. I was a paralegal back then, and, and that was my supervisor and the attorney who hired me. And yes, she lost her wallet either at the subway or the restaurant where she, you know, had just uh, had lunch earlier. And, you know, when she's literally five minutes away, she realizes that she had lost her wallet. So she calls me and tells me, you're going to have to go in, you know, by yourself because I don't have any ID. So she couldn't go into the MCC without her bar card or license, nothing, nothing. So at that point, um, she was like, it's up to you. And I said, well, of course, you know, I mean, he's already expecting us. Well, I'm definitely not going to, you know, uh, just not go because he can't go. So I, I, I ended up going by myself. So you got to tell me, were you nervous? You know, not nervous. I, so 
at that point in time, I have researched a little bit about the about Mr. Guzman because when I initially found out that I was going to be representing him, the name sounded familiar, but you know I wasn't really you know fully aware of yeah. what the press was saying, and um, so I had to like you know Google a little bit, and then I was like, oh, that's the guy. Um, so you know, of course, I I was like wow, I can't believe, you know, I'm going to meet this person, like this individual where, you know, everybody keeps on talking about him. But personally, nervous, scared, yeah. um, no, I wasn't. It was more like a, a shock of, you know, wow, I get to meet, you know, this person. Yeah, well, he's had an incredible life, right, that most of us, right, <laughs> most, most right. of us I mean, have not is, had. You know, it is intriguing. I mean, you, you, if you have the opportunity to meet, like, a person like this, of course you're going to be intrigued. Of course you're going to you know, well, depending on and who you are and how you see it, you, you, you may think like, you know, of course, let's, let's go, let's do it. Why not? I mean, it, it, it's amazing to, you know, just pick on, on someone's brain, especially, you know, yeah, um, you know, someone like that. So would you, did he impart any special wisdom to you and your dealings with him? Because I, I know you're limited as to what you can say. You can't tell us what you talked about because it's protected by attorney-client privilege. Right, right, right. And the more and more, and not only that, he's actually under the SAMS, which are the special administrative measures which actually even uh, limit me even more in what I can say about, you know, him, um, because it could be construed as a message, and I can't pass third uh, messages, um, you know, from oh, him wow. or to him that's from any third party, you know. So basically his legal team, and that's it, not even his family, oh, I could wow. pass a message um, wow. because of the Sam. So, yeah, so, but I do, I do, I do say this. He is a very, a true gentleman. Um, since Mr. Guzman, I've had uh, about 10 more clients now. And I can tell you that uh, Mr. Guzman has been one of the most appreciative um, and grateful clients that I've ever had. Uh, you know, it's, it's, so it, it's good and it's, it's great to see, you know, that a client actually, you know, appreciates what you do and it's so humbled and, and you know, really cares about what you're doing for him. Um, so I take that, you know, with me and I, I think that's great. And, um, you know, that that's my nice. very first line is, you know, was but like him. It's always nice to have grateful clients. I do divorce. Yes. Um, and I always say, I don't think my clients are very grateful because, you know, they always focus on the one thing they didn't get. But I, I, back in the day when I worked for someone else, I did some criminal work and I always found that the clients were appreciative and they kind of just let you do your job because they, they know when they're in yeah. over their heads and they're not criminal defense attorneys. They kind of just let you do your job. Yeah. yeah, no. And another thing that I did like about Mr. Guzman, yes, he does let you do your job, but he also likes to be very involved and, you know, his, his, uh, you know, the reviewing of the evidence, his, you know, representation theory and whatnot, which um, you don't actually get in most clients. Um, uh, so that was also very interesting to see how involved he liked to be in his own representation. Now, and I, it, it was actually extremely helpful as well for us. So that was an incredible learning experience for you. Absol no, absolutely. Absolutely. Invaluable. So, so tell me, when did you start getting the phone calls from the press interested in <laughs> Who is this girl? So was I that started weird? getting the phone. <laughs> no, I started getting the phone calls uh, the moment that I, I filed a motion um, to request that the judge would let um, his uh, Mr. Guzman's wife give him a hug in open court. Um, because of the SAMs, they cannot communicate, so they don't have contact. And uh, 
they had not seen each other for what since January of 2017. Still haven't seen each other. Still haven't been able. So to no conjugal visits. Them. No conjugal visits. No contact. No phone call. Nothing. No messages from us, the attorneys, to that to you know the wife or vice versa. Was very strict. So I, I, I you know requested the court if. They could just, you know, hug and a momentary embrace, really, you know, under the eyes of the marshals, the court, everybody, um, you know, in case they were paranoid about yeah. Mr. Guzman passing a message or whatnot. Um, of course, the uh, motion was denied, but apparently that created, you know, a buzz. And so uh, next day I had, no, actually, next few hours after I submitted, like, on ESF and then, like, two hours yeah, after two hours, I had, like, the post, the times. Everybody called me. <laughs> that was that, that, it's like a whirlwind. Was it exciting? Or were you like, oh, my God, what is this all about? Well, yes, of course. I mean, it, it was exciting. Of course, you <laughs> fresh out of law school, you became an attorney, and then you, you know, all of a sudden have the whole, every, every news channel, every media outlet calling you. Of course, it is exciting. Um, I'm not. I'm not introverted also, so mm-hmm. that it also has to do with my personality. Yeah. I thought it was, you know, it was pretty exciting um, to feel like, you know, big shots attorneys, you know, probably feel, you know, um, when they get these calls. And I'm sure that they're probably used to by now, but it's back then to me that that was extremely exciting. And I also thought um, that I did something good, even though that I did not win the motion and that, you know, my client didn't, for my client, um it showed his humane side, yeah. which to me, you know, that was a win in itself. He is a person. Exactly. And then how did you end up being on the legal team for Jeffrey Epstein? So we have, so Mark Furnish, he's an appellate attorney. Um, we had him briefly uh, on Guzman's case because um, I don't know if you remember or maybe you don't, but uh, the jury misconduct issue with uh, Guzman's case. I think I do remember something about that. So, yes. So uh, Mark Furnish was hired. Mr. Guzman hired him to um, deal with that issue, um, being that, you know, he's an appellate attorney um, and he's a brilliant writer. And so, you know, we became, you know, colleagues. Like right then, right, you know, it was it was like a click with us. So when my, Mark Furnish got Epstein's case, because he's the one who personally got it, um, then he asked me if I, you know, wanted to help him and join his team. And so, of course, I said yes. That's awesome. And I know you can't really talk about that either. What a bummer. <laughs> um, well, I, I, will, I will tell you this. I, I, I did spend many hours also with Mr. Epstein as well. Um, you know, I, I spent probably with Mr. Guzman, I would spend between six and seven days a week, probably about three to six hours. And then with the Mr. Late Mr. Epstein, um, the month that I worked there, because unfortunately, you know, he passed. Yeah. Um, but I would say that I would go anywhere from five days a week, anywhere from, it was actually more hours, and it was anything from like five to sometimes 12 hours. And how did you find him to be? How would you describe his personality? <laughs> well, um, very, very smart person. Um, very different from Mr. Guzman in the fact that um, he uh, was more quiet, did not like to talk as much as Mr. Guzman. So they're completely, you know, uh, two different personalities. But um, unfortunately, 
That's all I can say at the moment, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Now, I do want to ask you, you went to Loyola for music studies, right? I went to music business, yes. So how on earth did you end up going to law school? What did you want to do with the music <laughs> studies? So since I was a little girl, I always thought I wanted to be, well, I always wanted to be a singer. And when, you know, I went to college, when my parents said, well, we're not going to go, we're not going to pay you to basically go to performing school. And so I decided, that's why I decided to do, you know, music business, because it's a business aspect, so it was a business degree, but then with the music um, background, which, you know, was, was my passion. So I think, you know, it's 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 going to be good for me, but then, you know, and then I won't be have I, I won't be worried about, you know, my, my parents. So yeah. that's, that's how I did it, which I really, I really enjoyed. I really liked the business aspect. Um, and so, but then I decided, you know, what, what next? Cause I, I want, I want to, you know, do more. So I decided to go to law school thinking, well, I'm going to do entertainment law. Uh, once I took my first, I think it was copyrights or IP, I don't remember, one or the other, um, I realized very quickly that that was not for me. I, um, you know, I, I don't like writing. That that, that wasn't for yeah. me. So I, I didn't want to be, you know, a nine to five. I didn't want to have a nine to five just, you know, writing contracts for yeah. somebody else. And I decided to do the criminal justice clinic. And that is where I really fell in love with the criminal defense because that's very hands-on. You are interacting with clients. You are on your feet in court every day. And in a way, you know what? And it's like a, like, like, like civil attorneys and, and, and family attorneys. When you have a trial, part of it is a performance. I yes. mean, you have to deliver a story. You have to deliver a message. And you have an audience, which is a jury and a, jur- and, and a judge um, in some cases. And... You know, I just felt like that's what I really wanted to do and needed to do. And also the aspect of being able to help this vulnerable person. This person is locked up, you know, most vulnerable moment. Um, And in actually my case, that I've represented, you know, two very, you know, high-profile figures when the whole world has turned their back on them. But there's one person still on their corner. It just, you know, it, it, it fills me with a lot of satisfaction that they can still, you know, count on me and that I'm not going to be, you know, judging them the way that the whole world is judging them. And so yeah. to me, that in and of itself is a win. And, you know, it's the biggest satisfaction of all. Well, as as an attorney, we, everybody is entitled to due process and should have counsel. That's um, correct. Which I think is sometimes hard for the public correct. to and understand. When these, these clients come to us, they come, they're innocent because they're innocent until and if proven guilty. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, most don't get, but it's the way it is. Yeah. So I know you have to run because you have to meet a client, probably some high profile person that we'll be reading about <laughs> soon. Um, but I did want to ask you one other question. I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, that you started some sort of fashion business with El Chapo's wife. Yeah, well, I helped her with the um, with the intellectual property, the trademark, basically, to you know uh, do the trademark, the, the trademark process, and then the LLC, and also all of the administrative, you know, side of creating right an LLC and creating basically, essentially, a line. Um, yes, I did. I did help her. My team, uh, Michael Lambert, as well, helped her oh, okay. with uh, this fashion line. Yes, you're not partners. I think this article sort of suggested that you weren't business together. 
Well, they may, but just because when, you know, you're starting an LLC, you have to put somebody as an agent. Okay. And somebody as a, so it's probably, you know, why um, they're saying that. I mean, it, it's part of a structure of an LLC. But no, definitely, that, that, that is her business. Okay. Well, I know that you have to go. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's really an incredible story. I'll be watching you and congratulations on all of your success. And if there's anybody who's jammed up in New York and needs a criminal defense attorney, how should they reach you? Yes, absolutely. They can uh, call me at 917-743-7071. Awesome. Thank you. Hopefully you don't need Mariel's services, but if you do, (laughs) give her a call. Thank you so much. Feel free to call me 24 hours, seven days. Oh, 24 hours. Good. Hopefully (laughs) I won't have to be the one to call you. (laughs) Hopefully not. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. All right, so our next guest today is Fania Vexler. Fania is a criminal defense attorney as well in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And she's got, she's here to talk about a particular experience that she had in court. And um, she actually got arrested for contempt on behalf of one of her clients being a zealous advocate. And I just want to know if your attorney has not done that for you, what are they doing? So, Fania, welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. And um, just uh, tell us what happened. And we're not going to say the judge's name. Um, but this happened in Middlesex County, right? That's correct, yes. Just put the mic a little closer here so we can hear you. Um, what happened was I uh, was trying a case, um, which I've done on 10 prior occasions. Um and a two-week trial turned into a four-week trial for various reasons and um, basically probably prolonged by various legal arguments that were put forth before, before the court. And after my closing argument, I had an interaction with the judge. He didn't uh, – he or she didn't um, – Well, we can say a he, right? I mean, there's a million he's. <laughs> Not a million, but okay. He uh, right, didn't, a million. didn't agree with the way that I was uh, behaving and um, basically uh, held me in contempt, which which resulted in my being arrested and escorted out of the courtroom and brought to a holding cell um, for for a short amount of time. So and so, I've heard this story, and t- I, my jaw just kind of dropped to the floor when I first heard it, and I really get angry when I hear it too. Um, but a little bit of the background, you um, were before the court, the prosecutor, and tell me where I get any of this wrong. The prosecutor made an objection to something, and you guys went to sidebar. So for the non-attorneys that don't know what that is, when you go to sidebar, it's it's not being recorded for the record. So whatever dialogue is happening, it, it's not being recorded. Nobody else in the room can hear it. Um, and that's important sometimes because sometimes you want something on the record. And in this particular case, if an objection is sustained or overruled, you want to have the judge's reasons for that on the record so that it's recorded. And if anybody appeals later, that it's recorded for the transcript and the appellate division can see what was the basis for overruling or sustaining the objection. So you do this at sidebar and then you go back to counsel table, right? And 
he he I, I can say he right he um, we're not going to say his name though he sustained the prosecutor's objection and and so what happened at that point um, well so while um, I guess during the course of the trial there's portions what which are heard uh, which are presented before the jury and then there's a lot of stuff that happens in the trial um, outside of presence of the jury which maybe um, a lot of the members of the public don't realize this, but um, I would say most of what happens in a trial happens outside the presence of the jury. That's when legal rulings are made by the court um, based on arguments from the prosecutor and uh, and the defense. And so when um, when this objection was made and sustained, and there were no reasons given for the for uh, it my, that satisfied me um, or my client's rights. I had re-raised the issue when the jury left after my closing argument. And when I asked the judge to elaborate as to his reasons, um, he basically told me that he agreed with every word of the prosecutor but couldn't recite what those words were. Um, So it was like he didn't even remember. He didn't even know the reason at that point. I can't speculate as to what he knew or didn't know or whether he just didn't feel like he needed to elaborate to me at that time. But I felt like there needed to be an elaboration because – um, a sustained objection could turn, can make the result of the case um, come out vastly differently. And for in criminal defense, even when there's a wrong ruling and there's a wrong decision, um, the the process of getting it right takes a lot of time, and uh, potentially the the client is serving a sentence while that is being um, reviewed by the higher courts. And so I felt like I needed to for the record to reflect what those reasons were. And he just refused to do that. Yes. And I have heard the recording, part of the recording. I would love to air it here, but, you know, we're trying to be a little sensitive. Um, and it's it's quite shocking, you know, when you hear it. You're describing it now. And I think it still sounds terrible, especially as an attorney, Um you know, you you have to be an advocate for your client, and part of that is making sure that due process is observed and things like these seemingly small things, like having things on the record and not at sidebar that could affect the case. That's part of your job as a representative of the client, right? And this judge isn't allowing you to do that. Well, I mean, even if he doesn't it doesn't agree with what I'm saying or how I'm saying it. Uh, look, I'm not, I'm an advocate for the fact that everybody has a job to do in a courtroom and the judge has his job. I have my job. The prosecutor has his or her job. And in this adversarial system, you want to, everybody needs to be working at their maximum in order to get to the right result. But it begins and ends with the judge being the gatekeeper of the law. And when the law is not um, being applied uh, the right way, or in my opinion, the right way, which I'm not saying that I'm a guru by any means Mm -hmm. uh, of the imagination, but um, you, you have to preserve the client's rights. And sometimes (laughs) when you're doing that, you push the envelope and this this is the result. So so t- bring us through what happened at that point. So you, you're engaging in this argument, I guess, with the judge, and it's getting heated, right? 
yes, it often does get heated. Um, but, you know, there's a way to behave in court. And perhaps if you would ask the judge, he would have a different um, perspective yes. and opinion about what transpired. Um, and that's okay. But the record does speak for itself. And um, I just couldn't, as an advocate for a client who is marginalized, who's um, who needs who needs his constitutional rights protected. I, I, I'm not, I'm the advocate that really, I, I try to zealously advocate for every single client and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work, but you have to try. That's, that's what my job is. Well, some attorneys might've, as, as soon as they got some resistance from the judge would have just sort of let it go and, you know, okay, I guess I'm not going to win this. We're done. What is it about you, Fanya, that, I mean, were you incensed at that moment? Because you saw an injustice happening. Um, well, th- the actual arrest um, was the culmination of of little um, tidbits of activity throughout the trial. And I think this was kind of the climax um, where uh, it was tending in that direction for yeah. a while. And then I just, I guess I just pushed the button too many buttons. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but obviously we talked about this before we came on air. And did you feel like you had been seeing little injustices happening throughout this trial that in a way t- that suggested to you, in your opinion, that the judge was not necessarily being totally impartial? I, I look, I don't think that anybody wakes up in the morning, myself included, trying to go to court and um, push extra buttons. That's never my intent. Um, my intent is to is to put on my case and let the jury decide the facts um, within the bounds of the law. And I'm pretty sure that the judge didn't wake up that morning or any morning of that case with any sort of preconceived notion of what was going to transpire. But when things are live and heated and yeah. words are exchanged, sometimes that's that's what happens. Although, I mean, it's never happened before or since to me. And I mean, I haven't been practicing for that long, but. Well, so I guess if this was happening to you on a weekly basis, you might start to wonder, maybe there's something I'm doing <laughs> that is uh, rubbing people the wrong way. And I'm, I'm sure there are people that, that think that about me, but that's, I mean. It doesn't matter what they think, Fanya. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. And my favorite part of this recording is when he starts screaming at you to shut up and sit down. Yeah, that also happened. Um, That's true. Yeah. And I did not raise my voice. I just kept saying, I just kept my position and kept arguing because that's what my job is. That's what I perceive my job to be. Yeah, And and I think what's really special about this story is that, like I said earlier, I think a lot of people who who just, you know, don't want to make waves, you know, they, they don't want to be the one that's getting this sort of attention would just they would shut up and sit down, right? They would just shut up and sit down. But I don't get the feeling that Fanya Fexler is someone who sh- just shuts up and sits down. I don't get that feeling from you. When I tell the story, <laughs> I often say that I did sit down, but I didn't shut up. Ah, I like that. <laughs> um, I like that. And you, you can't. You sometimes you you have to keep arguing, even in the face of the judge being really heated at you and upset. Be- not for the it, not for argument's sake, but for it's always for the, the protection of the client's constitutional rights. That's 
the way I perceive it, and that's the way I function um, on a daily basis in my in my criminal defense practice. So, in in your in your perception, do you feel like at, when you were in that moment, what was in the back of your mind? Was it that there's an injustice happening here that's affecting my clients, or was it? Also, that this judge is showing incredible disrespect to a member of the bar as well. Honestly, it was the former. It's, I, it's always about the client. I didn't feel. I mean, I, I didn't feel like it was. It, it started to tend towards a, a, maybe a personal thing, but I can't prove that in any way, and I'm not trying to accuse anybody of doing that. But for me, it's always it always ties back to the client. Um, just because I'm very familiar with how um, fixing the wrong decision, how long it takes. And, yeah, yes, yeah. And that the client is going to be, you know, oftentimes judges tell clients that we're all going home and uh, in terms of the judge, the lawyers, and the court staff, but whether or not the client's going home is always a question, right, a fact for the jury to decide. So then tell us what happens when he, when he says, I'm holding you in contempt. I mean, were you did, – did you just see, like, cups coming at you? I mean, what happened at that point? No, procedurally, um, it was actually interesting. Uh, I, I, I told him that I didn't know what that meant. I, I really didn't know what that meant. I mean, I knew that it probably would result in an arrest, but I actually never experienced this, so I didn't know what, what was going to happen. Um, and so he – I sat through the, the prosecutor's closing argument before um, the judge actually had the contempt, uh, the arrest effectuated on me. And then there were, you know, uh, members of the sheriff's department that came to the, the courtroom and uh, escorted me with my hands behind my back. Oh, my God. I, I would have been mortified. Were you mortified? Um, or were you still pretty I was. I think I was point? pretty shocked um, that it was actually transpiring. I... I, yeah, I was just shocked. Um, and and I think everybody was uncomfortable. I yes. Think the sh- yeah. um, you know, I, practicing in the same courthouse for, you know, more than for the last five years, basically on a regular basis, you get to know the uh, the staff pretty well and they get to know you just because it's kind of like going to work. You're there for a lot of the time. And it was, I think it was awkward for the, for the officers to have to, to, to actually follow through with the order to arrest me. And your client's witnessing this too. Absolutely. Oh, that must have been embarrassing. I would have died. Although he's probably like, that's my attorney, my hero. I'm assuming it was a he. Um, <laughs> what is your client? I mean, I know you, you can't reveal too much about your, your conversations with your client, but whatever you can share. Was your client concerned about this, about how it could potentially affect his case? Or was he like, you know, my God, my attorney is, I wish I could curse right now, (laughs) is like, you know. I think it's a combination. I think it's a combination of of things. Um, My concern obviously always then always relates back to the client because if the judge has such a problem, I think, with, with me personally, potentially could affect his rights and so that's always what I'm thinking about too and so I I didn't consider myself like a martyr or anything like that it was just it was just another day at the office and something that happened that I didn't expect but you know it's an experience and hopefully never happens again I don't look forward to being arrested 
um, in open court. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've actually never been arrested before that. So, Yeah, I was going to ask you that, but I didn't want to you know, open a can of worms no, there. No, but thanks no. for answering. No arrests. Um, so, you, so you go back in the holding cell, which is probably someplace you never, ever thought that you would be. I've actually been to the holding cell, obviously, but to not... To visit your yes, clients, but right? on the other side. Yeah. Correct. Yes, right. So how long did you sit there? It was probably around 40 minutes, but it, um, it doesn't sound like a lot of time now, but when you're sitting there indefinitely not knowing, it's kind of like, um, you know, being laid off of work and not yeah. knowing whether you're going to get a job and when that's going to happen. So it, maybe it's it's nice to have a vacation, but you don't know when it's going to end, so... I just didn't know how long I was going to be kept in there. Uh, yeah, were you thinking like, oh my god, am I going to have to go to you know the workhouse overnight? Like, were you thinking that? I mean, because you're a criminal defense attorney, so I I wouldn't know anything about it. I suppose that was within the realm of possibilities, but I also knew that I didn't really do anything um, specifically to be so inflammatory. I didn't curse. I didn't scream. I didn't. Um, disrespect the judge in any sort of objectively I th- objective way. Like I didn't call him names or do anything that I thought rose to the level of of that sort of punishment. Well, and I tend to agree because I heard the recording and the, you know the parts that we've discussed already, and I think you were just being a zealous advocate. You know, I don't. There wasn't anything like so egregious that you were so incredibly disrespectful that I. I think it would rise to the level of contempt. That's just my opinion. Um, so you're back in the holding cell. When do you get out of there? I mean, do, what do they do at this point? Do they fingerprint you? Do they process you? I didn't get processed completely, although I wouldn't really know what that means. I, I was patted down. I was, my earrings were taken off. They were put in my property. Um, Did you have your cell phone or did they take that? Actually, I was running to court that morning, um, and I'd forgotten it in my car. Oh, so you couldn't even call your lawyer. You couldn't even exercise <laughs> your one phone call. That's right. I couldn't even call my lawyer, although a lot of the uh, defense bar, it wor- this kind of news traveled really fast. And when I got back to my phone, I had very many missed calls from my colleagues in the defense bar. Um, Saying, do you need me to come bail you out? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> but you know what? I always say no one's a true friend unless they're willing to come <laughs> bail you out. <laughs> or sit next to you. <laughs> Yes, or that's a true friend, right? They're sitting next to you. I did have a friend come visit me in the holding cell. So. Oh, really? Yes. Well, I won't ask you who that was. Um, so, how do you get out of there? Um, he let. However, I got in there. I was let out. I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but um, the sheriff's officers came out, came, got me, and uh, we continued the trial in regular course. It was. And the, was the jury aware of this at any point? Not, I hope not. Oh, but they were never present when this stuff happened, right? No, the jury, that would really taint the jury and uh, would probably cause a mistrial. So um, the jury was always sequestered when any of this was going on. And was the jury present when you were having this argument with the judge on the record? No, they okay. were not. They were not. Um, that's not something that would happen in front of the jury's presence. Although, I mean, I guess I could have raised the issue in front of them, Um in an objection while they were still seated in the box. But I that was pr- bad form, in my opinion. So yeah. I waited until they um, left. Because, I mean, I guess I knew the writing was on the wall as to what was could potentially transpire. So I used my exercise judgment and didn't... 
So you get out of there, and is it is that it? It's just done, you know, not not, not just dismissed. I mean, whatever happened there with was, the contempt proceedings? There were never formal contempt proceedings um, filed. There was no written order. Uh, it just kind of faded to black. Mm, interesting. Well, and you didn't take any action. You didn't explore whether you could take any action. No, no. Um, I just kind of chalked it up to, you know, um, tempers being heightened and, you know, just uh, something that could happen. And I don't take I don't take it personally. I wasn't offended by it in a, in any real way. I just wanted to again, I was just trying my case to the best of my ability. What did your parents say? <laughs> Fanya, we always knew you were a troublemaker. <laughs> yeah, my I mean, yeah, my mom wasn't surprised. Um, I guess nobody's surprised by this. Maybe there is a part of this that's um <laughs> but, that's brought on by me. But um do you get people like coming up to you like high-fiving you? Or, no. or, you know, looking at you like, oh, man, I don't want to hang out with her. <laughs> I mean, it, it was talked about in the defense bar and my friends, you know, we talk about it sometimes. But it's something that happened and I was. So um, is it kind of like old news now? Kind of. Because when did this happen? This happened in 2019, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty incredible story. Um, yeah, I I don't know that a judge has ever told me to actually just shut up and sit down, but they probably wanted to. Um, I'm sure I evoke that sort of emotion out of many judges. And you haven't gone in front of this judge since then? I have not. Can you really avoid it? Because you kind of get stuck with whatever judge you have on your case, right? Or do you think internally they're like, let's not have Fanya go in front of him again? I'm not sure what procedurally happened um, behind the scenes, but I just... Again, this is not for me. It's about my. It's always about the client, and um, I think there are plenty of judges that could hear cases, and it doesn't need to be this particular judge um, when I'm on the case. But if you get him, you don't. Do you have a basis to have it reassigned? It hasn't happened uh, yet to me that I was assigned a case in his courtroom since then, um, nor a pri- privately retained. So. Hmm. Have you ever heard about him doing this something similar to anyone else? I mean, does he have a reputation for this sort of thing? I don't know about. I just honestly, I don't know. I haven't heard this happening. I, I've never really heard of a another attorney getting arrested. You're kind of a trailblazer. I have to ask: Was the prosecutor a woman or a man? It was a woman. Okay. You know, my mind always has to go there to the gender thing. Which <laughs> probably irritates some people but sometimes it is a gender thing did you feel like it was i can't honestly i can't say i i can have a feeling about it but i i don't know i don't know that it's because of of that i'm there was nothing that transpired on the record or ever since or before that would indicate to me that it's because i'm a woman that this happened i guess if the prosecutor had been a man maybe you know you would have felt that way the problem is you never really know you can't, right. How can you, you can't tell. You it's can't just know. a feeling. I mean, you know, uh, we do operate in a sort of, this profession is dumb. Is, is, there are more females now than ever before. Actually, a judge recently made a comment about that. There was, um, we were just in court at the end of the day and all the attorneys were, were women lawyers. And so he asked, like, where are all the guys? And 
it was just that's funny i wonder if he ever asked where all the women were when it was a room full of men <laughs> maybe this judge would have <laughs> maybe he would have um yeah I'd have, i've often wondered that too because when i was in law school around 2000 i graduated in 03 it was about 50-50. I think it might have even been slightly more than half of the class was women. But then I felt like when I went out into the world, I didn't see them anywhere. It was still, it just seemed to be still male-dominated. And I kind of always wondered about that. Where did they go? I guess the easy answer is they got married and had kids and decided to stay home. But, and I think that might explain some of them, but I don't think it explains all of them. I think this, I mean, this profession, if you do it long enough, it can weigh on you heavily um, because my, in my opinion, this job never stops. You're working 24-7, especially in private practice. Um, you're always at the, um, at the beck and call of your clients because nobody ever calls you, not ever, but seldom calls you saying anything, you know, about anything good. They're yeah. always calling you about some problem that they, you need to solve for them. Um, immediately. And as you know, but I don't know if the public knows that the court system works relatively slowly. Yes, it does. So nothing moves um, quickly, although um, things have been moving more quickly after bail reform in some regards and uh, best practices have been moved the civil calendars along. But nothing is, you know, expedited. And nothing moves fast. So you're always trying to triage their expectations and, you know, um, yeah, they want to know why isn't this moving along faster, so especially with what I do, divorce. Why is this taking so long? Oh, a divorce, yeah. I just had a divorce case not too long ago that was pending for four years, and that's a long time. To, it is a very long time. I thought I had a four-year <laughs> divorce one time, and part, part of it was that the court system was incredibly slow. It was in Mars County, and their judge kept, the judges kept getting reassigned, like, it seemed like every few months you'd have a new judge. And every time you have to get a new judge, you know, that person has to get up to speed with the case. And they might be going in a direction that was completely different than the last judge. And now you're starting all over again. Um, but I want to go back to, you know, the, the sea of male faces that I see all the time. I went to a tax seminar. And it was when the tax code was changing because, you know, the, the alimony laws changed recently in New Jersey. And I went to a tax seminar and I actually took a picture of it. There was every single person in the room. I was the only female in the room. And every single person in the room was an old white guy. You just saw all these, like all this white hair <laughs> and bald spots yep. <laughs> and all these men. And I couldn't believe it. I was like. Where are the women? Where There's no diversity either. There was like, aren't there any people of other ethnicities either? Where are they? I have no idea. I don't know the answer to that. I, um, I would like to know the answer to that. Maybe there are certain areas of law where women gravitate to more. or I, I just don't know. I don't know. So do you feel like as you practice, do you feel like you're in a boys club? Do you feel like you've sort of infiltrated a boys club? Sometimes. Um, again, it's, it's not something I think about on a daily basis, although probably amongst, you know, in the, in this day and age, it's, it's heightened the sensitivity to, um, the, I guess the gender, gender roles or, um, being a woman among males in the profession. But, um, 
there there are so many great female attorneys. Yeah, there are. And maybe there are less of females practicing law or I don't know. Maybe they're not doing litigation. I don't know. But maybe they're corporate counsel. We should get some statistics on this. (laughs) Um, But I don't know. I think, you know, also, too, sometimes when I was starting out, I, you know, sometimes I would wonder if I was being treated differently, sometimes because I'm female, but sometimes just because I was young. And I think that there was sort of this attitude sometimes like she doesn't she's not she doesn't know what she's doing. You know, she's she's fresh faced. She's just got out of law school. She doesn't know anything. And I think actually a lot I would get a really great result because of that, because they would underestimate me and think that I maybe I wouldn't be prepared or that I just you know wasn't going to make creative arguments or whatever. Um, And that's not what happened. In fact, I was always over prepared when I went to court because of that. And I think a lot of times they just didn't even see me coming. And and I'll say, you look young. How old are you, can I ask? Um, I'm 33. So you're young-ish. I'm older than you, so it's all relative. (laughs) But do you ever feel like you get that? Because I felt like I did. But do you ever feel like you get that sort of treatment? I think I am probably more vocal than people expect. I think maybe um, even older female attorneys that I interact with, they they probably don't expect me to be as vocal as I am and, um, you know, say something back. If somebody's telling me something that doesn't make any sense to me, I will um, voice my concerns. I won't just accept it. I mean, obviously, it depends on the situation, but... Even yesterday I was in court and there was a female prosecutor talking to me about a case. And um, she... Was she older than you? She was older than me. And I guess it's not. it wasn't in a county that I don't practice in often. And so I wasn't a familiar face there. And she, the way she was talking to me was as, as though it was my first day on the job. And I didn't... I didn't know what I was doing. And she basically was like, go ask your client if he's going to plead guilty to this charge. And I was like, We were at a pre-indictment conference, which is like prior to um, formal charges even being filed. And so, I mean, I I think it would be at that point, she handed me a stack of discovery that I hadn't read, obviously, because it was just handed to me. So there was no way I would even, even asking my client that question, I think at that point was premature. And so I was like, well, let's just pick a date. So we can come back and talk about this. And he's like, well, go. She's like, go talk to your client about this. And well, which was a totally legitimate uh, position to have. Right. Right. And so I kept kind of pushing back and saying, like, this doesn't make any sense. And she was like, well, you know, your client will plead to this in six months. And I was like, nah. I mean, because she has all this wisdom. Right. Is that why? I don't know why she would. I, it was I think it was just a consequence of not ever having dealt not, with you dealt with me not that there's something special about me i'm yeah. just that um i guess if she just didn't know like what my background was what my experience was whether i knew what i was doing or well, yeah so the danger is oh she's treating me differently because i'm young but it could just be that anytime she encounters somebody new and she doesn't know their style that she she does that but a lot of times that goes hand in hand right because i'm young i haven't been around the circuit as much as probably my older male counterparts. Yeah. Um, I, I also have issues sometimes with, with clients that, uh, that feel like they ho- need to hover over me because of 
the fact that I'm I mean they hire me obviously but then they just feel like I'm you know not 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 old enough or don't have enough experience um I also have <laughs> do they ever say that to you or is that just you know your it's feeling? just a feeling that I get yeah. sometimes I, I even got like a text from a client yesterday and he he basically was like, thank you, sweetie, for taking my case. And that's like the biggest pet peeve of mine. Because um, he would. Well, obviously, if you were a dude, he wouldn't have said that. But you, again, but I if, don't know, but probably not. Yeah, yeah probably not. <laughs> but, but you never know. Cause if you were like, you know, a 60 year old woman who he might have said that. So what do you say to put him in his place so that he's not treating you like that? Do you just ignore it? or Do you say something? I don't think if I thought it came from a from a bad place, I probably would have yeah. put him in his place. It just depends on the context. And so I don't want to overreact. I I feel like whenever somebody says that, it's like in an endearing way and yeah. maybe wasn't meant to be condescending. But that's a yeah. huge pet peeve of mine. I get that a lot. Like sweetie and honey and things like that? Yes. Who's doing that? Who do Clients, clients do that a lot. And obviously men, obviously? Yes. Yes. Oh, man. I remember one time <laughs> I called a female attorney, sweetie. I don't know why I said it. I don't know what made it come out of my mouth. But boy, did she flip out. And she's was she's older than me. We were not getting along so great anyway in, in the case. We were just butting heads a lot. And I don't know what made me say that. I think I'd gone through this phase where I was saying it all the time. It was almost like like a verbal tick, you know. I don't know why I was saying it, and it kind of slipped out. And I don't even remember what I said. I think it was something like, "Listen, sweetie, if you think that's going to happen, you're dead wrong," or something like that, you know. Um, and I admit that it wasn't appropriate. I shouldn't have said it. But this woman flipped out. I remember it so vividly. We were sitting at a table with our clients. And actually, my partner, John, was with me at the time. And I was like, and she was always cool, calm, and collected, this attorney. Like, I was actually very impressed with that about her all the time. And I remember she stood up. The, her chair like flipped backwards and she just started yelling at me. I don't even remember what she was saying. She started yelling and I was like, whoa, I just triggered something there. And I didn't feel good about it. It was a little funny, but I, I didn't feel good about it because it, I don't, it wasn't appropriate for me to say that. Um, so if she's listening, I'm sorry about that little thing that happened. But, um, I don't know. I guess, you know, we're human and I don't know. We're, we try to be our best, put on our best face all the time, but we're human beings. And I guess we should say that about the judges, too. They are, right? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but we do still expect to have a certain decorum when we go to court. Yes. So I guess this, you've just moved on from this at this point, right? I mean, what what choice do I have? It, yeah. it, you know, there's, no, I I don't, I I'm not. My personality is not to harp over stuff. I just kind of, you know, if I don't get along with somebody or in in life, I just don't interact. I don't go out of my way to do anything yeah. malicious or you know. It just takes too much energy. That's not my style. It does. You kind of just have to get over it. I mean, especially doing litigation and like divorce or anything where you have to go to court, especially criminal defense work. You really can't be sensitive. You can't be meek. 
Yeah, but there's also, you know, there's a way to be. It's like Michelle Obama says, right? When they go low, we go high. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I try to adopt that philosophy in most of the, what I do um, because otherwise things spiral out of control and you never know what the yeah. consequence of what, you know, tit for tat can result in. And so it's better just yeah, to it's true. ignore or move, move on. What, what choice do I have? I mean, you just have to move on. Get, get on to the next case. So why did you become a lawyer? Is there a lawyer in your family? No, actually. Um, <laughs> and my parents, I was born in, in the former Soviet Union. And uh, we immigrated here when I was two years old. And being a, a Russian, uh, a, a first-generation Russian immigrant, my parents basically um, told me that there were two professions that I could um, could become either a doctor or a lawyer, and I couldn't stand um, the vomit. top of the food chain. <laughs> I couldn't understand. I couldn't stand vomit, um, so I knew that doctor was out. And so um, that's, that's interesting. Do, are you bilingual? Yes. Oh, cool. That's Actually, awesome. To try speak oh. Russian, Spanish, and English. Wow, you're and you're fluent in Spanish. Um, I get by. I would say proficient. Okay. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't toot my horn. That's awesome. Cool. So if I ever need a Russian translator, I know who to call. Absolutely. Do you have a lot of Russian clients? Um, <laughs> I have a, a, Russian a, mobsters. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. Okay. And what did your parents do? Are you like the first person to go to college or, you know, are you? Yes. Oh, that's I awesome. I love, well, that me too. So I, I love when I meet people like that. They must be very proud of you. But I mean, being having gone to college, that doesn't make an individual smart. I believe no. that my mother is the smartest person. Oh yeah, um, in the that I've ever met, and she, I don't, I, I don't even know how far she went in school. To be honest, that's not something we talk about. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. You don't have to go to. There's a lot of dumb people coming out of college. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you just got to go through the motions, right? College is you just got to pay for it, and. Uh, yeah, so yeah, get degrees. Yeah, no, I, I, I know, I have a lot of you know blue collar uh, friends. I, you know, because that's the environment that I grew up in, and crazy smart people that have businesses and do really well for themselves. So yeah, just because someone has a college degree, thanks for making that point, doesn't mean they're necessarily smarter or more successful. Absolutely not. But how long have you had your firm now? Um. As Vexler Law, we, I've been operating since September of uh, 2019, but I had a prior firm with a partner uh, that we founded in 2018, so the partnership didn't last that long. But Are you still friends? <laughs> Not really? Sure. It's okay. <laughs> We've all got a story or two like that. That's a, maybe another show. <laughs> well, if anybody wants to reach out to you because they want a zealous advocate like someone like you that you've just demonstrated... How can they reach out to you? Uh, they can call my office, 973-475-8456. Um, just like Marielle, I'm open 24 hours. The cell phone, the phone number gets routed to my cell phone. That's awesome. They should call you because I'm not open 24 hours. Um, <laughs> you know, I want my personal time. Um, and what kind of work do you do, just so we know? I do – my specialty, obviously, is uh, criminal defense but I also dabble in other litigation. I do special civil cases, some personal injury, although not too much of that. But I do uh, restraining order hearings. Um, okay. So DWIs? Yes. 
municipal court. Okay. Traffic violations. Yes. That's cool. I would love to just hear more about that. But anyway, thank you for sharing this story with us. I hope you guys learned something. And thank you for listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt.